if if the listeners take home one thing from this podcast, it's that Bioshock is all a ploy by Mariah Carey. Hi, Richie. Hi, Sin. Hi, everyone. I'd like everyone to close their eyes. Picture the sunset. Imagine a pina colada. And oh my god, who's there with us? Hello. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, Madeline. How did you get here? Um, Through invitation only, of course. (laughs) Was it a kind Hearst invitation? Um, I'm not sure quite what invitation it was, but I'm here nonetheless. Hello. So today we're going to talk about Bioshock, specifically Bioshock 2, with our good friend Maglin. Yay! Yay! Richie, did you clap? Thank you. <laughs> so Maglin, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where can people find you on social media and stuff like that? So I'm mainly active on Twitter, although there isn't a huge amount of content TM available on there. The best place to find me would probably be on Medium, where I have a few um, essays. I was going to say short essays, but they're not particularly short, um, which tend to focus on philosophy and video games. So I have a few things on the Soul series on there. And I also have some other stuff that focuses on the Dishonored series, which I know you guys have spoken about before. And I think the most Mm -hmm. recent one, which is not particularly recent, um, is on Persona 5. Thank you. Yeah. Sorry, did you say like a name of your Twitter or something like that? So my Twitter is at Meglin Amandel. Excellent. Thank you. You're very welcome. And so today we're going to talk about Bioshock and Bioshock 2 specifically. So, Meglin, can you tell us a little bit about your interest and experience in Bioshock? So my interest in Bioshock mainly comes from the fact that it's one of the few video games that everybody holds up as an example of how the medium of video games can do philosophy or engage in philosophical conversation. So when the first Bioshock game was originally released, it was kind of received as this brilliant philosophical criticism in the form of a video game and in the form of a first-person shooter, which for video games is not ten, doesn't tend to be the most kind of highbrow intellectual, I guess, uh, of, the, of the video game genres. Yeah. Um, so... I guess my my interest in it is mainly because the game itself is so explicitly trying to engage with philosophical ideas, um, particularly political philosophy. Um, and the reason I'm really interested in Bioshock 2 is because it's not really focused on um, by a lot of these discussions. The first game tends to get a lot of coverage. Bioshock Infinite tends to get substantially less, but still a reasonable amount of coverage. But then... Bioshock 2 is kind of the uh, kind of the uh, unfortunate middle child that no one really wants to talk about. Oh. 
I was going to say just like Richie, but Richie is not a middle child. No. <laughs> this is the problem with your Mad Libs insults, is that <laughs> they don't tend to have a lot of, of internal you know, structural integrity. <laughs> Much like Rapture. <laughs> oh. Bringing us back onto the topic. Wow, those PhDs are sure paying off. Good mm. job, everyone. Okay. Um, Richie, would you like to tell us about your interest and experience uh, with Bioshock? Um, I liked System Shock when I was like a teenager. And I played Bioshock a bit. And I, I actually never really got into Bioshock because it was sort of the successor to System Shock, but it was way more of an FPS than a like adventure sort of like what you would call a four five one game. And um, as a result, I've never actually finished Bioshock or Bioshock Two. I've played them a bit, and um, I I basically like the um, the thing that stuck in my head was was the Big Daddy fights, was being able to set up these sort of elaborate like. Uh, sort of complicated traps and things and really exploit them and have like a proper sort of duel with something. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of my experience. I played Bioshock. This is my first time ever playing Bioshock 2 was for this. I got... Um, I don't think I got very far and I got about five or six hours into it. I got to the, the theatre and then we had to record, so I'm not entirely sure where it ends up going. But that's my Bioshock experience. Thank you, Richie. Are you going to ask me about my Bioshock experience, Richie, or well, do I thought, I I thought, ask myself? I thought, I thought you were going to go, well, <laughs> unlike you. Oh, okay. I've played a lot of Bioshock. Okay, yeah, go. <laughs> why, why not list all the MCU movies you've seen after that as well? <laughs> No, for real? I can I can do that. I have the Wikipedia page. I don't edit these. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so my experience with Bioshock is that um, I think a lot of us go through a phase where we become adults, but unfortunately we're like too busy with either school or work. And so in this period, uh, I had like, I didn't really play a lot of games, but when I went back into gaming, the console that I had was a Mac. And so I was looking up games you could play on the Mac. And Portal as well as Bioshock were one of the of the few games that you could. And so, uh, yeah, I played Bioshock 1. I was totally in love with the game and the setting and the big daddies and everything's beautiful. And uh, I've like loved the game ever since. And so I played Bioshock 2 as well, and I totally loved it. And I played Bioshock Infinite, and uh, I had a lot of issues to work through because it wasn't very good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's my experience with Bioshock. Uh, Meglin, why don't you tell us your experience with Bioshock? I spoke about my interest, but my experience is not particularly uh, extensive, really. So I ended up playing Infinite first. Um, and the only reason for that was because when I moved to university, I didn't have 
enough money for my own uh, game console. And eventually my brother, who is still at home with my parents, um, he managed to get like a, a new console. I think he ended up getting like an Xbox One. So his old 360 was then kind of fair game. So <laughs> I got my hands on that and he had already got a copy of Infinite on there. So I kind of played it because it was there. Mm-hmm. And um, the, the first two games I really only played because they went on sale relatively recently on the PlayStation Store. Uh, so that's how I actually came to play Bioshock. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think my first experience of the games was when I was studying and people in my classes who were like proper gamers who owned their own consoles um, would be talking about it within my philosophy classes. And Bioshock would be this this name that I always associated with philosophy plus video games. Oh, someone's going to talk about Bioshock. Um, but I, I think I watched some youtube videos on it but didn't actually play the games until very recently cool thank you so bioshock 2 kind of like bioshock 1 is pretty mysterious because the way it's laid out is the story unfolds through the audios you find and through environmental storytelling and things like that yeah which i think is really cool but since we played Bioshock and we know how it goes, and most people listening to this probably have an idea as well, we're going to, I guess, explain it in a less mysterious way, a little more straightforward way. Mm-hmm. So, Maglin, could you please talk to us about the plot of Bioshock 2? So, the timeline is a bit difficult to figure out in places but it starts off with a kind of flashback that happens roughly 10 years before the events of the actual game as we play it and from what i've managed to piece together from doing some research into just generally what the plot of bioshock is meant to be um, the flashback actually occurs during the events of the first bioshock game of course it's nothing that we actually um see or experience directly in that game ourselves so you start off playing as a big daddy which is obviously this iconic uh, creature from the first game who exists to follow around and protect the little sisters um, that were such a focal point within the first game in terms of the game's morality system and and the progression mechanics that were tied to that and you're following this little girl around trying to protect her and you get ambushed by a bunch of splices so splices obviously being the enemies we're all familiar of from the familiar with from the first game who are basically these hyper aggressive junkies that have been so uh you know shot up on the chemical wonder drug that seems to fuel rapture's economy um that they've just gone a bit loopy really so they attack us and while we're trying to fight them off one of them hits us with a hypnotize plasmid which was something that you were able to do in the first game you could unlock this plasmid which would hypnotize the big daddy and Mm -hmm. then suddenly this very strange austere lady appears before us and takes away the little sister that we're protecting um 
while giving a full villain monologue and then commands <laughs> us to shoot ourselves in the head. And that's how Bioshock 2 begins. Yeah, and that scene is very traumatizing because she's like, here's a gun, shoot yourself in the head because you're still under the influence of that other thing that they uh, shot you with, right? And so you see the big daddy just like putting a gun to his head while the little sister is still there seeing it. And it, it um, kind of mirrors the end of Bioshock 1. Whereas here you're being made to kill yourself, so it's like setting up that this is going to be a, an inversion in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Right, yeah. It's very deep, Richie. Thank you. It is underwater, yeah. Everything's really deep. <laughs> <laughs> Symbolizing that it's, uh, it's unfathomably deep. <laughs> Excellent. I suppose that in order to get to anything more in-depth, we probably need to kind of discuss where do you go from an opening scene in which the main character has shot himself in the head, right? Well, the game ends there. What was I playing? Yeah, it's an experimental sequel. It's <laughs> kind of like, get a bit of a dark ending, not that long. <laughs> <laughs> really good for speedruns. <laughs> Okay, so Maglin, please tell us more. Yeah, sure. So the kind of prelude preface scene takes place roughly 10 years before the main events of the game. And 10 years later, uh, we reassume the role of this big daddy and we're stumbling out of a uh, Vita chamber, which is part of the technology of Rapture that effectively allows people to come back from the dead. It's not really clearly explained how any of that works. It seems to be more of a gameplay mechanic than, than anything else. But you emerge from this Vita chamber and basically have no idea what's going on. Um, both as a character and as a player, you're left very confused. You're in the middle of Rapture, as we remember it from the first game which is basically a complete mess. Uh, it's filled with um, splices. It's filled with all sorts of very confusing things. And basically what you learn over the course of your experience and over the course of how the game reveals the story to you, um, you are actually brought back by the little sister that you were assigned to protect. And it turns out that the woman who used that hypnotized power on you to force you to take your own life is the child's biological mother and also the main villain of the drama. So Bioshock 2 sets itself up as a kind of prolonged family drama. It's basically a long custody battle over this child, um, Eleanor Lamb, um, between your character, the big daddy, Subject Delta, and Dr. Sophia Lamb, who is the, this child's mother. And basically, it, it transpires that Eleanor has obtained some of your genetic code and used this to bring you back so that you can rise up against uh, her mother and free her from the nefarious plot that Sophia Lamb is trying to bring about using the sci-fi technology of Rapture. Mm hmm. Mm. Very convoluted. Yeah, it's it's a little bit it's a little bit convoluted. I mean, it, the the game kind of sets up this opening, trying I think to use 
as many links to the previous game as it can. So it's trying to use the Vita Chamber. It's trying to use the whole, um, all of the things connected to the Little Sisters, connected to Adam, connected to Plasmids. Because I think that the game, as you said, Richard, goes in a very different direction. It's very much an inversion of the first one. It seems like it was written with this introduction specifically so that people would have to would be immediately met with the fact that, oh, this is definitely a Bioshock game. Like, it's got all of the things. It's got the big daddies. It's got the little sisters. It's got the creepy monologuing antagonist. Um, it, it's it's underwater. That's kind of really important. And all of the familiar technology is there. Yeah. Yeah, if, if you showed me, like, I'd seen footage of this before, and I because I hadn't really been paying attention, I wasn't entirely sure if Bioshock 2 was a standalone game or, like, a DLC add-on for the first one, because there's so much, like, is, is, this is, like, similar, is recycled. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah, they certainly, they certainly try and, if not directly recycle, they try and upcycle a lot of the stuff from the mm. first game. Mm. Um, they're, they're clearly trying to take it in, in a very new direction with a new kind of focus. But the the game is working very hard at the beginning to make sure that you, the player, realize I've just picked up a Bioshock game. I'm playing Bioshock 2 because all of the familiar terms and the familiar kind of aesthetic elements are all there. Mm-hmm. Mm. I mean, I don't see why it's trying that hard. Bioshock 2 is literally the name of the game. Yeah, that's true. Thank you. <laughs> I guess, like, my... Because my, I, I replayed this recently. I didn't get very far in it. But, um... Uh, it's basically... You have to... You're talking about it being a custody battle over this Eleanor girl. <laughs> um, basically, Eleanor appears to you in a series of sort of visions, and she's leading you towards something, and the... The central kind of progression thing is that there is a, a train that is taking you from A to B, but it will stop every so often. You'll have to do something to get the train running again, whether it's like this part where you have to um, open a door. There's another part where you have to melt some ice that's on the track, things like that. So your train just sort of continues on its way and you sort of go from like chunk to chunk to chunk. And each little place the train stops is a little sort of self-contained story little with its own kind of like ideas and sort of thesis to it and then you move on to the next one mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. yeah i mean so just like the first game the second game tries to kind of showcase so many different districts within the city of rapture um with i think i think the the general idea being that rapture is such a kind of fantastical location and i think that there was perhaps an element when people received the first bioshock game given that it received so much analysis in the form of people doing lore content just doing kind of deep dives no pun intended into the um (laughs) (laughs) oh my god that was awesome yeah thank you i try um so given that people were trying to kind of uncover as much as they could about this game which was given that it has a kind of mosaic-like aspect to the storytelling where you have these um, hidden audio logs that tell the story and you're supposed to kind of find them and a lot of them are out of the way. And given that there are so many Easter eggs in in the game, um, it's definitely been set up so that people could explore uh, the environment that they're in and that there's all these different mechanics that you can use to explore that. But given the 
fact that so many people had questions, you know, very basic logistical questions, such as how did this city survive at the bottom of the sea? Even with all of this sci-fi technology, don't we have a few logistical questions about how this actually worked? What was life like before things completely collapsed within Rapture? And I think that the second game tries to give us some of that. So in the first game, we were seeing a lot of um, kind of industrial spaces or spaces that were associated with kind of major figures within um, Rapture's history, um, most of them being um, doctors of, of some kind or artists. That's Scientists and artists seem to be the main focus of, of Bioshock as a whole. Um, in this one, you see a, a few more domestic spaces, I think. Um, I think there's a one particular segment where you're going through, um, I think the area is called Pauper's Drop. And this was meant to be a reflection on, oh, look, this was what life was actually like on the day-to-day within Rapture. It wasn't all kind yeah. of really decadent, fancy stuff that we saw in the, in the first game. There were a huge number of poor people in this city, and this is basically how they lived. Um, so the game is also trying to reveal a different side to Rapture than what we saw previously through these uh, self-contained segments. Yeah, that's very true. Okay, thank you. Maglin, could you tell us a bit more about the villain of the game? Yeah, so the villain of Bioshock 2 is, again, another kind of ideas person. So both Bioshock 1 and 2, the villain is someone who has a very strong viewpoint, perhaps even ideology, about how they think society should be run. So obviously in the first game we had Andrew Ryan, who is this kind of eccentric, evil, kind of very wealthy man, very much styled after Walt Disney. Um, I wonder why. Mm. But um, (laughs) the the, the second game, um, our villain is Dr. Sophia Lamb. And she is a clinical psychologist who is brought to the city of Rapture in order to um, provide counselling and provide therapy because Andrew Ryan realised that, okay, we're we're all going to be living at the bottom of the sea. There's no sunlight here. That's probably going to have a pretty bad effect on people's mental health. So I'm going to bring in this psychologist. She's relatively harmless. She'll just help people cope with the very isolating environment of being at the bottom of the ocean. So she comes in, but unbeknownst to uh, Ryan, um, Sophia Lamb is actually uh, raised as um, basically this person who the, the highest ideal in her mind is the greater good or the idea of the public good, which is very different to Ryan's philosophy, which is all about individual greatness and maximizing the conditions of individuals being able to do what they want to do. And at that point, Andrew Ryan is like, I should have just gotten everybody sun lamps. (laughs) Well, I mean, they have all of this technology, but they didn't think to use it to solve the basic problems of what about sunlight? What about food? Right. They they instead thought, let's just rewrite everybody's genetic codes. They go mad and they don't need sunlight. <laughs> which obviously worked really well because everything everything is fine in rapture there's no problem there's no problem with rapture 
That makes me think of something you'd hear from the Soviet Union. Like, <laughs> no problem in the Soviet Union. Are either of you fans of uh, Avatar The Last Airbender? I've never seen it. Me neither. Oh. Well. Tell us the joke. Maybe it'll be funny. Uh, it's the uh, There is no war in Barsing Say. Is there a lot of war there? Yeah. Yeah, oh, well, I, I mean, I'm not going to explain the joke. There's nothing worse than explaining the joke, because it doesn't <laughs> especially when it's a reference to something neither of you have seen. It's like, if you get the joke, leave a comment. <laughs> it's a popular meme. Someone will come to my rescue in the comment section, I'm sure. <laughs> Excellent. Um, so, basically, things go really wrong when Sophia gets introduced into Rapture, because the, the background that we're given for Sophia is that she worked as a kind of missionary worker within uh, Hiroshima um, during the Second World War. And she survived the dropping of the atomic bomb, but was then completely appalled when she saw the rhetoric that was coming out of the US government, which was basically saying, oh, we did this because it serves the greater good. And this gave her the conviction that, okay, well, if it continues on its current trajectory, um, society is just going to completely destroy itself. Everything's going to go really, really badly. Um, and so she leaps at the chance to go to Rapture because she sees the technology that's happening there as something she can use to save you know, culture, society from itself. Um, and once she shows up, she basically starts doing all of the um, greater good um, ideas, or she tries to put them into practice in a way that really annoys um, Andrew Ryan. So she starts giving free therapy to the poor people, um, which is absolutely not allowed within Andrew Ryan's city, because the whole point of his city is you know, money is super important and rich people are rich for a reason. They're rich because of their individual genius and their greatness. They deserve access to certain services. Um, the poor shouldn't be getting things for free. Um, and it also goes hand in hand with the fact that she's offering therapy to these poor people whilst also actively trying to redistribute wealth to them, despite the fact that in the eyes of the ruling body of Rapture, they've done nothing to earn this. So she goes very much against the grain uh, when she gets there. Mm. And um, so this leads to her then actually founding a commune within Rapture, which is a really dangerous thing to do. And she founds it in uh, Dionysus Park, which is one of the areas you get to explore in the second game. I mean, by the time we get there, it's been flooded. Um, so it, we only see it in its destroyed state. But she founds this commune. Um, the name of the location is uh, very revealing because Dionysus is the Greek god of wine and revelry, um, known uh, in Roman culture by the name Bacchus. And one of the uh, religious motifs that's often associated with this figure of Dionysus and, and Bacchus is the, the Bacchanal which is basically a massive um, piss-up where you drink a load of wine, you take a load of drugs, and you're meant to experience this sense of becoming one with everybody around you 
And it's this idea of losing one's individuality to just be part of this greater um, spiritual whole. We should do that, but like we should do it with a bunch of like pizza, chips, and dag Dr. Pepper. I think we could achieve the same effect. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so with Sophia, she founds this commune um, that kind of annoys people. This is also the time when Eleanor, her daughter, is born. Eleanor being the little girl that our character is bonded with. And she basically decides to try and turn Eleanor into this perfect vessel, this perfect uh, little person that can continue her uh, her plan for transforming Rapture. Mm-hmm. And she writes this um, this book, which is called Unity and Metamorphosis which comes to be viewed by her followers as this kind of sacred text. Mm. And you find little like shrines throughout the game where they, they will have put unity and metamorphosis with like candles around it. And the, um, Mm. the cover design is a butterfly motif and you see them, they've sort of made these butterfly like symbols on the walls with copies of it under it. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. So she she does come across as uh, almost like a cult leader by the time the game you're actually playing it. Yeah, exactly. And the followers name themselves the Rapture family. And right from the beginning of the game, you've got Sophia on the loudspeaker talking to the Rapture family. So I remember very shortly after beginning the game, there's a loudspeaker announcement where she's saying, to steal Adam is to steal from the Rapture family. And there's this very strong ethos of, we are a family, we're all in it together. Sophia is definitely the mother, she's at the top, you don't question her, but we're all a happy family and we're all getting on and everything's fine. But just just make sure that you remember that we're this this perfect family. And it's reinforced with this motif of the butterfly. Mm-hmm. The butterfly is um, centrally important because the I you know we all classically associate the the butterfly with kind of transformation because of how it starts mm. off as the caterpillar and then goes into the cocoon and emerges as something completely different, and that very much uh, ties into or is in fact central to what Sophia actually wants to achieve. So whereas Andrew Ryan's plan was just build this perfect city and everything will be fine. Sophia's plan is actually slightly more in-depth because she sees human beings as fundamentally uh, engineered to bring about our own destruction. And she thinks that the only way that we can get out of that, the only way that we can save ourselves, is through transforming away from humanity, which is something that Andrew Ryan upheld to be kind of the big um virtue so when you first get to rapture in the first game you have this uh, kind of banner that proclaims no gods no kings only, only man. man yeah yeah so kind of andrew ryan is this kind of great humanist whereas sophia is actually of the mind that no there's actually something inherent within humanity that we need to get rid of we need to become utopians and the thing that she that she thinks is getting in the way is actually individuality um literally just having self-awareness, being an individual, that's the problem. And so over the course of the story, um, we discover that she's actually been doing experiments where she just injects people with 
loads and loads and loads of Adam and tries to transform them into this kind of collectivist thing. Um, we we meet one of her failed experiments, but the main experiment is actually her daughter, Eleanor. Mm-hmm. So they're both a little extreme. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So do you think that that kind of recontextualizes the first game then? Because it stops being like, in light of this, does that make you feel like Bioshock 1 is less of a critique of objectivism? And maybe the series is sort of more like a centrist thing, like the issue is that people take things too far. Yeah, I, I think that's definitely how it's been how it's been received. So, mm. I mean, Bioshock One is not particularly subtle about exactly what it's got in its in its crosshairs. It's directly focused on libertarian objectivism. It's making an absolute uh, beeline towards specifically uh, Ayn Rand, um, Atlas Shrugged, and all of that um, stuff. Whereas Bioshock 2 is a bit more nebulous about what its target is. And this means that a lot of people will will read it in very, very different ways. So some people want to read it as just, okay, well, what's the absolute opposite of objectivism? Oh, it must be communism. That's what it's going for. It's mm. attacking communism. Or maybe it's communitarianism, or maybe it's both. And mm. Bioshock does seem to have this attitude of i mean this this coming through in, in the second game of being yeah may, maybe maybe it's not the ideas that are the problem maybe it's just the level of extremity that we go to maybe that's the issue and yeah and infinite really leans into that obviously mm-hmm. which is a lot of people's issue with that game mm. Mm. yeah well i mean it, it, infinite does it in in so many different ways um it it does it with its kind of i don't want to use the word critique because it's not really that kind of consistent in how it does it but in its it, its attack i guess on a kind of very extreme version of american nationalism um but it also does it with the representation of race within that game so we have the whole subplot with the um enslavement of the black population of Colombia. And, you know, that's kind of unambiguously a one-sided issue right up until the narrative decides, actually, no, let's, let's, let's make this a, a two-sided thing. Let's make it so that actually, you know, maybe it's a bit of both and there's some extremity going on here that needs to be kind of, exactly as you put it, it needs to be made into a more centrist position, um, which got, Infinite in particular, a lot of bad press. Mm. And then they're like, you know what? Let's add some parallel universes into it. Why not? I feel like Infinite is like, it's like Bioshock sat down, had like 10 cups of coffee, four packs of gummy bears, and had all these ideas and just wrote them all down. I was like, this is perfect. <laughs> when in doubt, just, just throw in a metaphysical problem to distract them from the fact that the general premise is very, very wobbly. Just <laughs> throw in alternate hmm. dimensions and, you know, just anything that just people are going to say, oh, I wonder how that works. Then you don't need to think about the politics of it because you're more focused on this girl doesn't have the end of her finger and can walk through walls. What's going on with that, right? Mm. Hmm. 
So, I mean, in terms of what Bioshock 2 is actually trying to do, um, it lends itself to lots of different readings. What actually is Sophia Lamb trying to embody with this? And I mean, there's one very obvious connection that you can make um, within the text itself. And that's because in her backstory, it specifically mentioned that Sophia was raised to respect the greater good. And the idea of the greater good within um, kind of the history of philosophy is usually associated with utilitarianism, um, which is a pretty a pretty well known, pretty well understood uh, school of moral philosophy, um, which is trying to judge the ethical value of an action in terms of its consequences. Um, so specifically, uh, a utilitarian wants to maximize utility. And there are loads of different ways in which you can understand what that means. There's different um, and contradictory accounts. Mm. So it could be happiness, it could be pleasure, it could be well-being, what, whatever well-being is. Um, and as we understand it today, um, utilitarianism was pioneered in the 18th century. And it's usually associated with two figures, although it, it's a kind of it's got its own complex history. But the two people it's mm. most associated with are Jeremy Bentham and John Stuart Mill, and is usually summarized um, as you must seek the greatest good for the greatest number. And I think utilitarianism is something that is definitely in the minds of the of the writers, because there is a very uh, interesting kind of biographical connection between uh, Eleanor Lamb and John Stuart Mill. Um, which is that Eleanor is kept away from other children and, she, you know, her mother is trying to effectively kind of raise her and educate her or perhaps indoctrinate her into being this perfect utopian and being the right sort of person who can bring about her vision. And the same thing happened in, in real life with John Stuart Mill. He was raised in a very strict way to try and turn him into the perfect utilitarian. So I think that utilitarianism is definitely something that the game has in its sight, although it's a very extreme version of that. You wouldn't find very many um, utilitarians today um, arguing that we should abolish individuality. Mm. At least I'd hope you wouldn't. I don't know that many utilitarians, so. Richie? Well, I was thinking, like, you you learned the word panopticon the other day. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and that that's from Bentham. Yeah, uh, the Panopticon was uh, was an invention of Bentham's. Yeah, you know, Sin Sin was saying your face is a Panopticon the other day. <laughs> <laughs> the other day I was playing uh, Control, mm -hmm. and there is a stage or whatever called uh, the Panopticon. Mm -hmm. And I messaged Richie being like, your face is a panopticon. And he was like, did you just learn a new word? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Panopticon is a brilliant word, to be fair. It's very useful. Yes. Um, yeah, so I, that that's associated with Bentham because it's his kind of ideal design for a prison. Um, Life's a prison! Well, yeah, because that's, that's where that concept comes from, kind of. But I think we're getting off track. <laughs> the, the, concept of, the concept of life being a prison. 
<laughs> no, the con the concept of um, applying the the panopticon model to the idea of like people are forced to behave a certain. W we should explain what a panopticon is, I guess. So the idea of a panopticon is that like, oh, you you explain because you you know more. So about uh, so the idea of a panopticon is uh, a physical structure within a prison that you would have a kind of um, central tower that was overlooking all of these cells on the outside. And the idea being that it would be possible at any moment for the single guard in that tower to be looking into your cell, but you have no idea where the guard is looking at any particular moment. So it's the idea that we could be being observed is going to discipline us in a particular way to act as if we mm. are being watched. Yeah, and like when when we're talking about like d diff different forms of prisons and things, the idea is that like you can apply that model more broadly. So the idea is that is if people feel like they're being observed, then you don't need to directly discipline them because the fact that they think everyone else is watching them makes them fall into line. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean th this is um, this is precisely where uh, Michel Foucault takes it. He's uh, mm. he's mm. another. Um, philosopher who's associated with the image of the panopticon and I, yeah. I also follow a, a Michel Foucault meme page where the only joke is X is a prison and it can be literally anything um, <laughs> now his his philosophy wasn't as simple as everything is a prison no no yeah but he, yeah. he, is, he is very much associated with that idea and the idea of uh, the disciplinary gaze that could be on you at any particular moment I just had a vision. Mm -hmm. A new podcast <laughs> called mm -hmm. X is a Prison, where we yeah. fill X with a random word and explain how it's a prison. Cool. I believe it can be done. <laughs> yeah. Plus, Meglin believes in us, so. <laughs> All right. <laughs> It, it needs to start with things that are perhaps a bit more obvious, and then it needs to ramp it up into something that's really, really out there. Really? I was just thinking of starting it out like, you take a bunch of random words, anything from like cat food to like monitor, mm -hmm. and then mix them up and just like get mm -hmm. them out one by one. Yeah. I mean, but where's the narrative? You've got to have a narrative, yeah, Richie. right? Yeah, Richie, where's the narrative? We've got to have a narrative, Richie. <laughs> well, it was your idea to start it. Where's the narrative? You, you, oh. you can't announce a new podcast and make it my responsibility to explain it. I think that's exactly what she's done, though. Yeah, yeah. it is. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> what were we saying? So, so yeah, utilitarianism is definitely something that they have in mind uh, when when talking um, about the utopians and the idea of being so completely selfless that you would uh, you would just do what is in the interest of the greater good, irrespective of what's actually good for you as an individual. And in Sophia's ideal world, there is no individual because we are so drugged up on Adam that there is no there is no self. That the self is, in fact, uh, understood by Sophia to be a burden that she's trying to release us from. That sort of plays into the cult aspect, because that's a very mm -hmm. religious notion that we're actually, yeah, we're held down by the fact that we are ourselves and we have to sort of, we have to let go of everything to achieve enlightenment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Hmm. I mean, it's kind of interesting looking at the development of how religion figures within the Bioshock games, because like the first game doesn't really depict religion at all, because I think they were going for the idea of, well, if Rapture is based on strong Randian objectivist values, then religion is not going to be something that's going to have had a lot of purchase there. And then in Bioshock 2, one of the little uh, subsections, one of the levels, is you fighting your way into this church to fight against this preacher who fully believes that um, Sophia is going to deliver um, its people from the sin of individuality and uses a huge amount of religious imagery um, when he's talking to you, specifically playing on the surname of uh, Eleanor and Sophia, which is Lamb, and presenting Eleanor as the Lamb who will deliver us, which is obviously uh, very um, reminiscent of the Lamb of God within Christianity. Um, And then, obviously, that all comes to a head with Bioshock Infinite, where it's this super nationalism that has been transformed into kind of it's never really explicitly kind of christianity but it's very close so religion seems to become more and more of a focal point as they're moving through the three bioshock games mm-hmm. also thought it was um interesting the idea that they bring in religion when they start engaging with the poorer parts of rapture because it, it ties into the idea of religion as a, an expression of alienation yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's it is understood in that kind of you know classically austere Marxist way as religion is the opiate of the people. Um, it's kind of the I can't remember the exact quote. It's the kind of the, the sigh, sigh of the oppressed the, creature. Yeah, the sigh of the the oppressed creature. And yeah, you're, you're completely right that religion enters into it. Around about, I think it's slightly after you you go to Pauper's Drop physically, but it is it's very much connected within the uh, kind of theme of the game that the people who are worshiping, the people who are following um, the priest, they are people who are poor. They are people who don't have any any other hope of uh, kind of ensuring their own safety i mean of course because this is a bioshock game they're all completely mad already um and that's Mm. not the religion that's done that that's the uh that's the the adam that's the plasmids that's all of the other stuff that they have um just overdosed on um so it's definitely not presented in a particularly favorable light but you're, you're right when you say that religion is associated with the downtrodden and the oppressed because obviously the the elites of rapture don't need that in the same way Mm. where are we going in the outline now (laughs) (laughs) because we're talking about the 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 next note is like when we became a big daddy (laughs) (laughs) a sudden shift in idea (laughs) So, how about we go over the various characters now? So, the structure of the second Bioshock game is, as Richard has said, you're on a train and you're trying to get from 
where you start off to to arrive at wherever Eleanor is. And basically, you go through the game, and in each little area, you tend to meet a new character or a new face that is meant to help guide you uh, as you go forward. A lot of them end up being antagonists because it's a Bioshock game. And mm. given the time uh, when the game came out, which we're we're still talking about kind of the relatively, at least compared to where we are now, early days of having a morality system within a video game. And the first Bioshock game obviously had that with, you have the little sisters. Are you going to harvest them or are you going to save them? That's still uh, somewhat of an element within the second game. But one of the other ways that um, the morality system works in the second game is you meet at least two or three characters and are given the option to kill them but you don't have to kill them if you don't want to and that's as deep as the right. ethics really goes within, within <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and the game the game comes down really strongly um with its kind of internal logic by suggesting killing bad not killing good and that kind of doesn't really uh, account for any of the particular circumstances of these characters. So I think if I remember correctly, um, again, I've only played this game once, so I hope that there aren't any super fans who are like, actually, if you look at this section of the game, there is a fourth choice. Um, I think there are three, three characters that you get the option to, to kill or spare. Um, the first of them is Grace Holloway, who... I mean, we've just been talking about the, the poor within Rapture, and Grace Holloway is effectively a kind of mouthpiece for the poor. She is the character who you encounter within Pauper's Drop. And basically, she is loyal to Eleanor, at least in the beginning. I mean, it's also important to note that um, the character of Grace Holloway is also, I think, the only black character in Bioshock 2, or at least she's the the major figure um, within Bioshock 2 who is not uh, white. And she's mm. also associated with being um, poor. So, I mean, we've, we've spoken a bit already about how Bioshock Infinite has a really strong racial component to how Columbia works. There seems to be, it's not as explicit, but there seems to be hints that Rapture had a similar kind of system um yeah that race was important in terms of the economic standing of of individual citizens well even, even if it wasn't explicit if they just recruited people from 1950s america they'd just be very unlikely that there were that many wealthy black people anyway yeah exactly exactly Cause like that's obviously R ryan believes these things because of his circumstances mm -hmm. yeah exactly yeah um yeah and of course one thing that we should potentially have noted at the further towards the beginning is that Bioshock as, as a genre is is science fiction but it's also alternate history um, so it's it's picking relatively recent jumping off points for that alternate history um, but it it's it, it's doing it kind of clumsily right but it is trying to represent um, it's trying to represent racial tension I guess 
is yeah, a yeah. polite way of putting it. Um, <laughs> but it, it's trying to kind of nod to that something that's clearly going on here, and it's something that the game doesn't necessarily want to completely ignore. But then, as we've as we've uh, discussed, it it doesn't always do that in the most um, delicate way. Um, particularly, but that's that's more of a problem for Infinite. But the the main yeah definitely yeah, yeah. yeah. the main thing to note in Bioshock Two is that the mouthpiece of the poor is the the primary person of color that we meet within within the game, and she tries to kill us, and we're then given the choice: do you kill her or do you not kill her? Um, and much like the uh, mechanics of the first Bioshock game, where if you didn't kill the little sisters. Um, they end up giving you gifts later in the game as a kind of thank you for not murdering this child. Um, what a hero. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, you just really want someone who goes above and beyond and just doesn't murder murder children. Yeah. Because some guy on a radio told him that would make him powerful. Um, <laughs> I mean, it, we should note that the ethics system within Bioshock was considered to be pretty advanced for the time but when you're looking back on it 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 definitely leaves a lot to be desired because it it is very cookie cutter are you the the good guy or are you the bad guy and there's very little leeway in between those positions so the second character that you meet that you can potentially kill is uh stanley pool and he he's a kind of odd character because the game goes out of its way to present him as being really kind of suspicious and present him as he's definitely hiding something. And I can't remember what the level is called where you meet him, but basically he tells you, you have to go and deal with all of the little sisters on this level before I, I think it's opened the door so that you can continue to the next area or something. And so one of the things that's obviously really important about the Little Sisters is that they are the way that the people of Rapture get access to Adam, which is the genetic wonder chemical. It can rewrite your genome or whatever, however plasmids work, right? And you can deal with them in whatever way you like. You can sacrifice them. You can spare them. It's the same morality system as the first game. But Adam also contains memories. Um, apparently. I don't know whether this was just added in for this particular thing, but Adam contains memories. And right. ordinarily, you can't see those memories. But because you are a big daddy in this game and have this psychic link to Eleanor, who was a little sister, she lets you view the um, memories of these little sisters. And that's how you get the story of Stanley Paul, who effectively betrayed uh, Sophia. Um, he is the reason I think that Sophia gets locked up um, in the Persephone penal colony. Um, and he's also the reason that Eleanor, as a little girl, gets given over to Fontaine Futuristics, who we will remember as the second villain of Bioshock 1. Um, and that's how, she, yeah. that's how she gets turned into a little sister. Mm-hmm. And in order to try and hide what he did, um, he he is the one that then floods Dionysus Park and ends up killing all of the people who supported Sophia. And mm-hmm. the level ends with Sophia saying, um, she, "This whole thing is 
over the course of level of Stanley is saying, oh, well, you know, I need to keep the secret from Sophia. Don't tell her. I'm going to, you know. And then Sophia says, oh, I already knew about that. By the way, I've unlocked the door, so you can go and kill him if you would like to. Um, and again, the game is very clear. You can be the bad person and kill him, or you can be the good person and spare him. But it's really the third and final person that you're given the option to kill, the third NPC, where the morality system kind of breaks down into a very simple killing bad, letting live is good. Um, because the third person that you meet is uh, Gilbert Alexander. And his role in the plot is basically to show you how far Sophia is willing to go in order to produce her perfect utopian. Because he's effectively the first experiment, and she filled him with a bunch of Adam. And he's basically gone completely insane. He's this big creature within a tank um, that you encounter over the course of one of the levels. And basically, you go through this level and the few levels before, and you you meet this person through his audio diaries, through his um, kind of tapes, where he is saying, oh, so we're going to do this experiment. I have an idea of what might happen to me. If I turn into some kind of monster, please kill me. Please, please end that for me. Um, and you're given the option to do that in game. But if you want to get the trophy at the end of it, which says that you're the good person and made all the right decisions, you have to leave him alive. Um, which, so there's kind of an internal tension within the game as to well, which is the right choice. But at the same time, there, there clearly is a, a kind of right choice, right? And it's he's supposed to live so that you can get the trophy. And then you've, mm -hmm. you've not killed a named character. Um, you've killed loads of splices, and you've killed loads of big daddies, and you've killed loads of other stuff, but they're not very important, ethically speaking, because they're not a named character, and that's what's important for this game's morality system. <laughs> I mean, it, 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 it's a common trope. Yeah. Like, the, you know, how many pieces of media are there where, you know, the hero will cut their way or shoot their way through loads of nameless goons and then get to the villain and have the opportunity to kill the villain and then the hero will be like no because killing you would make me exactly the same yeah. you are like, yeah that's kind of the logic they're going with um yeah this is a person who has effectively given you express permission if i become a monster kill me and then you encounter him he is a monster and the game is saying you can kill him but if you want this if you want this achievement you better not mm -hmm. Hmm. which is again perhaps the ethics or the the ethical space that's opened up by the game where you can ask this kind of interesting question as to well what sh what should you do in that case is then hampered by the game's own mechanics and the game's own achievement system yeah and that was um that yeah. was also I remember that was a big point of discussion with the first bioshock as well that it's this critique of objectivism but also it's a game about being better than everyone by killing them <laughs> well, well this is this is the thing like i mean i'm not so sure that the game actually is about that because yeah one of the things that you know it's one of the things that the game tells you is if you kill the little sisters you will get more adam and then you will be more powerful and that's a good thing um 
And then it throws in this ethical quandary of, but if you kill them, they are little girls and you're killing little girls. You probably shouldn't do that. Yeah. You're allowed to kill off one, I think, and still get the, uh, quote, good ending, unquote. It's because she didn't have a name. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think it's probably with the first little sister because it's so early in the game and you're so used to just following the instructions as to what the guy is telling you that uh-huh. I think that it might be a moment where the game is kind of aware that a lot of players might just go ahead and do it without really thinking about it. And so Mm -hmm. it wanted to kind of give you that one-off before you then committed to getting the bad ending. Um, Yeah. Maybe. But what I was going to say about the Little Sisters is if you don't sacrifice them, if you save them, they end up bringing you loads of gifts, which basically mean that your progression is exactly the same as if you had killed them. You might be slightly behind, but when I played the yeah, Bioshock yeah. game, I managed to get nearly every uh, every single one of the plasmid unlocks, and I didn't kill any of the little sisters. Um, I mean, I mm. obviously played it quite recently and knew about the whole gimmick, so deliberately went in there knowing that this was going to be a choice and knowing what I was going to do. Reminds me of a, a common thing in RPGs, where it's like if you're offered a reward, it's usually a good idea to refuse to take it because you'll get something better later on. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's exactly. It's just yeah, that, that yeah. good things come to those who wait uh, mm. theme. And I mean, I, I, I think that the fact that you end up equally as powerful, whether you sacrifice the Little Sisters or don't, is, I mean, it's definitely been criticised. It's been criticised by a bunch of people as saying, well, the the choice system doesn't even make a difference. Like, So what's the point in having it there? But that was very much the whole point of the first Bioshock game, which is that you are under the illusion that you are making these choices. Turns out it's psychological conditioning, mostly the whole time until kind of the third act where that gets removed. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's kind of a uh, potentially a deliberate choice to to incorporate that with the idea being that you're going to end up in the same position no matter what. In fact, if you then look at the ending of Bioshock 1, the only way that your character can survive is by saving the Little Sisters, because they save you, effectively. Um, So I think that perhaps the game is actually coming down on the kind of, we need to have a community side of the debate more than it is on the individualism side, as represented by Riot. Right. Um, because of how it handles its own ending and because of the fact that you know it says, oh, you will become more powerful, but maybe that's just trying to test whether the player has kind of fallen for all of the rhetoric that they're surrounded by whilst they're in Rapture. Maybe. Yeah. Thank you. What should we move on to next? Um, that's all the characters, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, there's... There's Augustus Sinclair, but oh my yeah. god, Sinclair! Just, <laughs> I've literally just written his name in my in my notes and can't remember anything about him other than that he's in most of the game. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I really don't know much about this character. The first thing that comes up when you Google him is Augustus Sinclair accent. <laughs> that tells you a lot about how this character was received. I think. Um, oh, okay, right. He he was a he was a science man. A science man with an accent. 
Yeah, he was he was an accented science man, and he did a load of um, research into plasmids, basically. All right, we can ignore him. Yeah. Sorry, Sinclair. Okay. <laughs> There's only one Sinclair <laughs> on this podcast. <laughs> Shade. There can be only one. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know the tune, and I tried to sing it, and it's just so stupid. This is the second time in two days you've done that. Yeah. yeah. I should really like listen and practice it. <laughs> Third time's the charm. Yeah, there we go. Okay, so do you guys want to talk about community now? Yeah, sure. All right. Okay. All right. Thank you. So now let's move on to the theme of community. So we've talked a lot about the first game, and even though this podcast is focusing on Bioshock 2, they're very much a, a, a twin set. You have to really talk about the first game to talk about the second one. So it's pretty much well-trodden ground now that the first Bioshock game is critiquing um, Ayn Rand, it's critiquing libertarian objectivism, um, and as a narrative, uh, what the game is trying to do is basically take this fictional setting of Rapture and say, let's build it on the principles that Ayn Rand and her kind of cronies espoused, push it to its limits and see what breaks. And basically the whole thing breaks. That's kind of the whole point, because the moment you arrive in Rapture in the first game, everything has gone really, really badly. Um, the complete individualism has led to the collapse of any form of political or social environment, really. Mm -hmm. um, and we, we, we've talked a bit about how the first game uh, has this morality system with the Little Sisters, and it's kind of a false morality system because it promises you power in exchange for killing them, but you basically end up in the same position no matter what you do. And actually, if you save the Little Sisters, they save you at the end. So the game seems to be uh, including this implicit, what we actually need is community. That's what we really need. Um, individualism is is a flawed way of looking at things. Instead, we should go for a much more communitarian um, option or, or viewpoint. Um, and so I think that what we can then say is that if the first game is this critique of individualism and is generally very pro-community, the second game shifts its focus to the question, what do we actually mean by community? What does that community look like and specifically within the context of Bioshock 2, what are the limits of community? And specifically, what is the limit of the relationship between individuals and the community in which they live? So much like Bioshock 1, uh, Bioshock 2 is going to try and explore this question by presenting the most extreme version of an idea that it can find, uh, really just trying to carry everything to its logical conclusion. And this is this is Dr. Sophia Lamb. She's going to use her mastery of social psychiatry and all of this genetic technology to create a society dominated by unbounded ethical altruism. So a society where everybody is absolutely selfless to the point where we lose all individuality, we, we are literally without self, um, because that burden has been taken away from us. 
And we've talked a bit about how Bioshock kind of plays this very, or at least Bioshock 2 plays this very centrist role, where it's trying to say, maybe it's not that one perspective or the other is necessarily bad. Maybe we need to just not be so extreme about what we're talking about. And we've also discussed a bit about how what Bioshock 2 targets is not super clear. Um, it's not clear yeah. which system it's trying to attack. Um, so, variably, it could be, you know, communism, it could be utilitarianism, it could be any of these things. Um, but if it is talking about communism, if it is talking about um, utilitarianism, it's talking about um, totalitarian forms of these ideologies. And this is the point where I draw upon one of my favorite thinkers, which is the 20th century political theorist Hannah Arendt, who wrote a a pretty well-known text called The Origins of Totalitarianism, um, within which she compares Nazism and Stalinism um, as different forms of effectively the same thing, which is totalitarian. And what she kind of argues unites these political regimes, what makes them totalitarian, is the production of what she calls the masses, with the idea being totalitarianism so fundamentally tries to control every aspect of its citizens' lives that it ends up meshing all of these individuals into one kind of social mass. So what you end up losing is what Arendt calls human uniqueness or individuality, which is something that she thinks is actually uh, foundational to what she calls the political, which is effectively community. So if we are talking about Sophia Lamb as representing totalitarian um, communism or totalitarian communitarianism or totalitarian utilitarianism, a lot of word with ism in there, but <laughs> if we're understanding her as, um, as, as doing that, that's what Bioshock 2 is actually really kind of about, I guess. Right. And so I think that it's possible to use the Bioshock games, if, if we understand them as being about totalitarianism in one form or another, I think that this allows us to use the Bioshock games to think through a philosophical question about what the nature of power is. And this is a, this is a question that I'm kind of obsessed with. Um, what, what is political power? How does it work? Who has it? Um, are all kind of, you know, there's really interesting questions um, from kind of my own interest and also just looking around at what's going on in the world today, I think it's an interesting question to keep on our minds. Um, So within another of her pieces of work, uh, an essay um, on violence, um, Hannah Arendt tries to disambiguate a series of what she sees as separate concepts that we often conflate into one thing. And these concepts are power, violence, strength, and force. And there are a few others in that essay as well, but it's mainly those four that are relevant to talking about Bioshock. So ordinarily, when we talk about power, we talk about it as a kind of possession. 
as something that an individual owns and that by possessing a certain amount, quantity, or kind of power, an individual is able to do something. Um, so we might think of Andrew Ryan as being a powerful person within Bioshock because he is able to do various things. But what Arendt actually argues is that power specifically refers to something um, collective, not something individual. So power for her is our ability as a group of individuals to act together or acting in what she calls plural. And this is because power for, for Arendt is fundamentally connected to, to groups of people and to communities. And she even goes as far as saying that, strictly speaking, um, there aren't any powerful people. Um, you have individuals who appear to be very powerful, but they are only powerful for the support of other people. So what we often mistake, or she calls it a mistake, is that, is that power is individual possession. And there are certainly individual people who um, we would want to say are kind of more powerful, but Arendt calls this strength. Strength is something an individual can possess. Power is something that only a, a group of people can possess. And specifically for Arendt, power is about novelty. It's about freedom, and it's about doing something that's just basically unprecedented and bringing something new into the world. So the idea being that when we, as groups of people, act together, we have no idea where that can go. So there is no kind of script. There is no specific end to that activity. We don't know what could happen. Um, and I think that this distinction between power and, uh, on the other hand, violence, is really relevant to what's going on within Bioshock. Because in the first Bioshock game, we have Andrew Ryan, and Andrew Ryan's philosophy is idolizing the individual, the individual genius that is the source of anything that matters. So in the first Bioshock game, there's this, um, there's this long scene where you're going through a kind of um, museum or gallery. Um, where you basically have all of this um, propaganda popping up at you. So there's this one bit, I can't remember the exact quote, but it's um, the, the voiceover goes, doesn't man own the sweat of his own brow? No, says the man in Washington. Yeah, you remember that scene? Yeah. Is a man not entitled to the sweat of his brow? No, says the man in Washington. It belongs to the poor. No, says the man in Vatican, it belongs to God. No, says the man in Moscow, it belongs to everyone. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they just don't write propaganda that way these days, do they? I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, we have this, we have this, uh, you know, glorification of the individual. And clearly, Ryan thinks of himself as a powerful individual person, the kind of person who, through his own labor and his own labor and genius, is able to create the city of rapture, and the kind of person who's uniquely deserving of the right to rule over it. Um, but what Ryan is kind of ignoring there is, well, how does he actually build rapture? He doesn't build it himself, right? He he gets a whole bunch of other people to do it. It's very much a collaborative project. He pays a bunch of people because he's really wealthy. Um, mm -hmm. And he tries to have this really strict control over how Rapture is going to go because he wants to execute his individual vision. 
But the problem is that his vision entails everybody being free to do what they want. And when you have a bunch of people who are free to do what they want, they tend not to be very interested in just doing what one guy who looks like Walt Disney wants them to do. <laughs> and this means that when he starts losing his power, um, when he starts losing his strength within that situation, he has to turn to violence to try and keep it. And mm -hmm. specifically, um, Aaron understands violence as being the complete opposite of power. So with power, it's all about groups acting. With violence, it's all about um, destroying those bonds between people um, that allow them to be powerful, to act together. And importantly, she also goes as far as saying that acts of violence cannot produce its own kind of power. And this is because unlike power, which is all about, well, we don't know what's going to happen. It's kind of creative. Um, violence is instrumental. It's a means to an end and always has a specific goal in mind. So to tie it back to Bioshock, um, Andrew Ryan has this very specific vision as to what he wants the city to be. And he is going to use whatever means he can to ensure that that city is going to be his vision even if that means fundamentally betraying the part of his vision, which is, this is going to be great because everyone can be free and we can do what we want and there's no kind of control, whether it's from Washington, the Vatican, or, or Moscow. Um, and the idea then for Arendt is that violence is always about trying to control a situation, trying to stop people from being free. Um, Whereas power necessarily involves a, a kind of letting go over control because we're only powerful when we're working together. And whenever we work together, there's also the possibility that, that we're going to disagree. And that, that has to be a possibility if power is ever going to be a thing for, for Arendt. And we might want to say then that Ryan kind of turns to violence when he's desperate. But actually, it's pretty clear that violence is written into the foundations of Rapture right from the start, right? Because in the first Bioshock game, um, we encounter all of these kind of individual geniuses. Um, the vast majority of them, if not all of them in the first game, are men um, who are basically just allowed to do whatever they want to do. Um, so we have Dr. Steinman, who is the mad plastic surgeon who's so obsessed with beauty that he's just killing these young women and mutilating them. Um, mm -hmm. And no one's stopping him because that would be a, a, um, a restriction on his individual genius. And that's just not, that's not allowed. Um, <laughs> yeah, don't mess with his individual genius. <laughs> exactly. It's, you know, it's, Rapture is presented to us as everybody's freedom matters, and this is brilliant. Um, but the only way you can really see that as being consistent is if you think that people are freely allowing themselves to be kind of dominated and controlled by these, these individual geniuses. So the other notable example from the first Bioshock game is Sander Cohen, who you encounter in Fort Frollo, um, who's basically this unhinged artist who his whole level is him telling you i want you to go to this part of the level and kill this person and take a picture of their body so that i can put it in my art project <laughs> you do that a few times and then then you fight him and 
the whole thing for him is that death is this kind of beautiful artistic thing. Um, so within Rapture, it's really clear. And I mean, this is cemented in the second game, particularly with Pauper's Drop um, and with the representation of the kind of the poor and the economic disparity within Rapture. That, well, clearly some people's freedom matters more than other people's freedom. Um, Clearly, this utopian ideal of everybody is free within Rapture cannot work because it's so individualistic. Because within Rapture, um, there is no possibility for any kind of community because you're just completely free to violate your fellow citizens. You can do whatever you want to them, basically. Um, we're not really given a super high level of insight into if any legal structure is actually in rapture, but whatever it is, it's really not, it's really not working very well. Um, mm. I'm pretty sure in the cut content, you could have been able to like buy security, buy firemen, you know, type deal where you could have paid for those services if mm -hmm. you wanted. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, that would certainly be consistent with the, the ideal that Ryan's trying to put forward, right? Which is all of these things are, are goods. They're not public goods. Uh, you need mm -hmm. to pay for them, um, yeah. which means that effectively you don't have any kind of um, police. You have private security. You have mercenaries. Um, mm -hmm. You don't have any kind of medical care. You have the insane plastic surgeon who is do whatever <laughs> he wants to you. Um, yeah. um, because you know he's a genius, right? So I guess if if you go in. Um, I don't know, if you go in with a cold and he decides to rearrange your face, that's just because he's a genius. And you yeah, just have very to stable it. genius. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> very, very stable genius. Um, <laughs> but, um, I mean, if we needed something um, that was more on the nose than the fact that Ryan is trying to cling to power within Rapture, and within the first game, you literally encounter him within the power plant of the city that he is clinging to control. Um, I mean, that's just, that's just everything you need to know about him, right? Like, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's not particularly subtle. Um, no. <laughs> but, so, the second game is is very much an inversion of the first one, and we may be tempted to then say, okay, so if Sophia Lamb is the opposite to Andrew Ryan, maybe her idea of the utopian is actually trying to bring about a condition of, of power in Arendt's sense rather than violence. Maybe she's trying to overturn that. Um, but the kind of togetherness that Sophia's utopian is embodying is also in Arendt's understanding, fundamentally very violent because the plan that Sophia has basically reduces um, individuals into just, just basically numbers within this big calculation that she's trying to run. And this is, this is very much a kind of on-the-nose critique of utilitarianism because when you're trying to work out your utility, um, you're often encouraged to do that through the use of the hedonic calculus where the idea is basically you just you you run the numbers and then you just you can use that to deduce okay so this action is going to bring about the most utility i've i've done my kind of moral calculation i know what i've got to do now but she's fundamentally reducing people to just 
cogs in a machine. So what she's then destroying is individuality, which, as I said earlier, is, is fundamentally what Arendt thinks you need in order to have any kind of what she calls politics and therefore any, any situation of power. Because Arendt defines power as acting together, and you can't act together if there are no individuals. Um, so for Arendt, communities require plurality, more than one individual person. And that also entails the possibility of disagreement and disharmony and disunity and all of these other um, kind of fragmentations that the utopians that Sophia wants to bring about just are not capable of. And once you get rid of that um, possibility for disagreement and that possibility of dissent, you're left with a, a mass. Uh, a totalitarian mass. And that's the reason that I think that we can interestingly use some of Arendt's political theory and political philosophy to understand what's going on in terms of the theme of community within the second Bioshock game. Yep. That was very well said. Yeah, that was a very good. Yeah. <laughs> it was like you finished reading the essay now. That's the conclusion. <laughs> Don't know what to say. Yeah, that was a lot of talking. <laughs> oh, from what I was saying before about the fire department and whatever. So I'm on the Bioshock wiki, and it says here that, like, there's a subscription police department that operated in pre-war rapture, only know from a single unused advertisement in the strategy guide. And uh, in rapture's objectivist economic conditions, there were many other subscription services, including semi-canon businesses like Fontaine Firefighters. <laughs> judging, from, <laughs> judging from the poster, there seem to be multiple other subscription police services. <laughs> It's like Netflix. <laughs> it's not even that there's one police service that you have to pay for or not. It's that there is literally just a whole bunch of mercenary groups that you can shop around for which one you want uh, to pay for. Yeah. Uh... I mean, I'd like to say that it's uh, incredibly dystopian, but if dystopia implies that it's not real, uh, looking at what's currently going on in certain parts of the world, uh, yeah, not great, <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> yeah. um, can you give me one second? I'm going to go get my computer charger. I'll be right back. Sure. Okay. Yeah, I was just I was just checking something accent. I'm I know private fire brigades were a real thing. I'm just trying to find the actual like reference. Mm -hmm. As in like real in our world. Yeah, yeah. It was basically a form of insurance that you bought. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean that's that's yeah. exactly what yeah. uh, what the model is in the US at the moment with medical care, right? Yeah, yeah. 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 Sorry, I didn't get to finish it. I, I just like I had about like forty eight hours free, so I just sort of I played up to the um, what's it called the the theater part, and mm -hmm. then I yeah, it was we had to go. So yeah, I mean, I don't know. Obviously, I have played these games very very late. 
um, in, right, in yeah, their yeah. in their cycle. But the gameplay for both of the first Bioshock games is pretty aggravating. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm 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 not a huge fan of of how the game actually handles. I think that the Bioshock Two definitely handles a lot worse than the first one. Right, right. I'm not really sure why that is, but I mean the the reason that that Bioshock Two is interesting is because of the kind of the ideas that are going on within the narrative rather than the yeah, actual game yeah. itself. Like I feel it, it could have probably got the same or, or conveyed the same message even if it had been like a film um because I, I don't really feel like the mechanics drive home the message in the same way that they yeah. one. right also because by the time you got to two you you would know ahead of time that harvesting little sisters is bad so yeah i mean yeah, yeah i mean uh, well I guess Bioshock One also it it did very much present that as a you probably shouldn't do that um, because you had uh, the character of Tenenbaum kind of there constantly um, saying please save my little children. Yeah. Um, hello. Hello. Hi. Yeah, I had to go get the charger twice. Do you know why? Uh, does it involve your cat? No, <laughs> I went up. And then I saw a piece of cake on the table, so I took it and came down. <laughs> and then I'm like, oh, wait, I was supposed to get a charger. <laughs> I mean, cake should be your primary concern at all times. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> so what are we talking about? Wait, you said the other game you played when you got a Mac was Portal. Portal and Bioshock. Were you disappointed that there was no cake in Portal? Actually, Richie, if you were a true Portal fan, you'd know that there was mm-hmm. cake. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's at the end. It has like a little a little candle in it. Mm-hmm. I haven't it's actually It's like a Black Forest, I think. What's up? I haven't actually played either of the Portal games either. What? They're so good. I have I've definitely heard that they are that they're worth it but I've never I I think it's the kind of thing where I'd now have to kind of go out of my way to to play them in yeah to to, to a degree where it's just obviously just not happened yet rather than I'm actively <laughs> avoiding them. Makes <laughs> mm-hmm. nice sense. What are we talking about now? We we talked a bit when you were gone so you can include that. Yeah, cool. Yeah, okay. And then um, do you want to talk about biologists? Yeah. Okay. Well, okay. Okay. Thank you. Going back on the top of about okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to talk and eat cake at the same time. From your lips, God says. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you. So now going back on the topic of Bioshock, could you please talk about biologism? Yeah, so biologism is a viewpoint or understanding of the world that tries to reduce everything to 
biology. Um, and it's particularly relevant as a theme within Bioshock, given how most of the kind of sci-fi elements are about genetics and about rewriting genetic code through Adam. Um, but it's also kind of relevant to some of the political stuff that's going on within the games as well, because of the way that Bioshock seems to import this idea of the body politic. So viewing the kind of political body of a, of a nation or, or a state as being a kind of biological thing, a biological body has a really long, right. it has a really long history. Yeah. Um, like Leviathan. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, it goes yeah. all the way back to, to Hobbes's Leviathan. Um, that's kind of the, the first major um, emergence of that, which is right at the beginning of social contract theory, which then is kind of the foundation of political liberalism, which underpins, at least in theory, most Western democracies um, to this day. So mm. the understanding that the, that the politics, that the society is a body that can get sick it can it can get infected, it can get ill, and you need to kind of treat those uh, remedies in various ways, or you need to remedy those symptoms in, in various ways. Um, this seems to be something that is at least on the minds of some of the characters within Bioshock. So a Andrew Ryan definitely um, has something like this in mind because he repeatedly uses the word parasite. And Parasite is specifically drawn from Ayn Rand. If anyone is feeling particularly bold, they can find some old interviews with her. Um, there are plenty of them floating around on YouTube. Um, she uses the word Parasite to describe an awful lot of human beings. And basically, it refers to anybody who she sees as being uh, weak um, to to whatever standard she's using at the time, most people uh, would 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 qualify as parasites uh, in one way or another for um, Ayn Rand, just because of how she sees um, the world to be set up, such that individuals are not the th at the front of the kind of value system. That it's much more communitarian than she would like. Um, so. The theme of parasites taking away the earned victories and contributions of the individual geniuses, which is very much a theme across Bioshock, means that then these parts of the body politic get understood or presented as just excessive, as just things that need to be cut off. And this has a, a real... Um, a real affinity for the history of um, the history of Europe within the past century, um, in the form of the Third Reich, because the body politic was really central to a lot of the stuff that was going on within Nazi propaganda, um, and how they figured, um, obviously predominantly Jewish populations, but also all kinds of minorities, uh, the disabled. Uh, various identities that we would now understand as being LGBT, um, the Roma, various groups of people were all understood as parasitic 
to the body of the nation. They were considered to be foreign and uh, invasive of that, and something that would make the body sick and that would make the body um, basically stop functioning as well as it should. And the whole kind of driving force of, of this ideology is, well, you need to exterminate the problem. In Bioshock, that translates into basically the poor. Um, it's also, as we've discussed, a racialized category of the poor, um, but also to people like uh, Sophia, who represents this ideology of, you know, she she's held up by Ryan, at least at first, uh, as this individual genius. But it very quickly transpires that he's willing to cast her as being a parasite the moment she disagrees with his viewpoint the moment she disagrees with his id with his ideological standpoint on the glory of the individual hmm. Hmm. richie do you have anything to add oh just you mentioned in the um in the thing on biologism about how that ties into the concept of plasmids as sort of the rewriting of biology. Yeah. 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 So it seems like, and this is, it, it's not really clear on whether this is a kind of narrative thing or whether it's more of a gameplay thing that then gets narrativized. Um, because the plasmids are basically the way that they can include superpowers and magic within, um, within the Bioshock uh, experience as a game that is played. But it seems that plasmids are a real um, central element of the economy of, of Rapture. The, the idea being that these products that are mainly created through uh, Fontaine Futuristics they can, with a, a simple injection into your arm, can rewrite your biological code such that you can then achieve superhuman powers. And this basically leads to the production of the collapse of, of Rapture, right? Because people get so obsessed with injecting themselves with all these plasmids that they can do all of these things um, that they that they turn into splices. And when they become splices, there's there's no going back from that. Their mind is so completely addled from all of this genetic transformation that they just kind of get driven mad. But rather than this being understood as, okay, so we've seen what's happened with these plasmids. We should stop using them because people are going mad and then attacking people on the street. And this is a bad thing for us. The response of the, of the, of the authorities of Rapture seemed to be more focused on Okay, well, that's unfortunate that that happened for them, but we can still market this because people will still buy it. And that is very much present within the experience of playing the game because every time you pick up a new plasmid, you get a very kind of cool, old school retro advert that's presented as if it's trying to sell this as a product that can be used by the citizens of Rapture. And given that a lot of these products are just effectively turning you into a living weapon. The fact that there are no restrictions on them is obviously something that is just kind of really absurd because you can just go to your local gatherer's garden, which is just a normal vending machine, and buy a tonic that you can inject into your arm, and you can then incinerate your neighbors. And that's that's fun, right? Because you have the money to do that. Um, <laughs> it, it, it's, never, it's never something that the kind of internal logic of rapture presents as 
should we really be allowing our citizens to just buy products? That, that, yeah. That, yeah. They, they try to sort of make it seem like less of a video game power. They're like, um, like I, I remember in, into getting the, the fire plasmid, the thing that lets you burn things. And they, they justify that in terms of like, you know, you can use it to light cigars and you can use it to light a fireplace. It's just a useful thing to mm-hmm. have. But then obviously in game terms, it just burns people. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but it, it's interesting because like, I can't remember the specifics, but there are some of them that are just overtly advertised as you can just exploit people using this. Um, so I think there's one yeah. where um, you can, I think it's in the second game where you can turn invisible um, and like wander around for a bit. I can't remember exactly what it's called. Uh, with the idea being that you can then teleport back to where you started. So it's like a kind of clairvoyance ability. And I think if I remember correctly, this is actually presented as you can spy on on people around you. Um, you can take yep. advantage of them and just see what see what they're doing um, in a kind of very voyeuristic way as well. Hmm. Yeah, and I, I guess with, within the logic of Rapture, like, it's other people's responsibility to prevent that happening to them yeah. because it's it's yeah. yeah they can hire the private security force to stop people from doing that i guess or mm. they can you know invest in plasmid research to try and find a, a counter plasmid or something i don't know but yeah the, the, the logic is very much well if you didn't want to get you know stalked and supernaturally observed by your neighbors you should have thought about that and made some plans because otherwise you're just you're just not being very uh, very entrepreneurial. Mm-hmm. Mm. The the whole the whole plasma thing within within Bioshock is it it's kind of an interesting meditation on if we had the ability to rewrite our genetic code uh, that would give us all of these abilities, would we be as overly enthusiastic as the people of Rapture are? And I think yeah. a lot of people nowadays probably would be very willing to just buy a syringe of this magic drug and inject themselves with it if it was widely understood. Yeah, this can give you the ability to shoot lightning from your fingertip. Don't know why you're going to need to do that, but you can do it, so why not? Yeah, definitely, yeah. It's also really strange that there was a commercially available uh Plasmid that allowed you to hypnotize big daddies when the whole point of the big daddies was to stop you from uh, stop you from attacking and harvesting little sisters. Unless that one wasn't commercially available. I don't know. But I, I kind of find it hard to believe that anything in Rapture couldn't be bought if you had enough money. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. That was Bioshock, but mostly Bioshock 2. With Meglin. Meglin, do you want to just mention your uh, Medium and Twitter stuff again if people want to find out more of your thoughts? Yeah, you can find me at uh, Twitter. Uh, my, hash- my hashtag or handle, I guess, is at Meglin Amandel. And you can find me on Medium through that if you'd like. Can you um, dispel Meglin Amandel for everyone? M- just yeah, listening. yeah, sure. M A E G L I N. A-M-A-N-D-I-L Thank you. 
thank you for coming. It was super informative and very well thought out. Thanks. I had a really good time talking with you guys. And before we go, you know how um, Sophia Lamb has a theme of butterflies or whatever going on? Mm-hmm. Did you know that Butterfly is the sixth studio album by Mariah Carey, which was released in 1997? Oh, these are the true facts. But that's not all. Do you know what Mariah calls her fans? Is it her butterflies? No, it's her lambs. Of course Oh. Mariah Carey is Bioshock confirmed. <laughs> That's what we have. That's what we have proven today. <laughs> if if the listeners take home one thing from this podcast, it's that Bioshock is all a ploy by Mariah Carey. <laughs>